You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I invite you to return to John's Gospel. We're going to read verses 1 through 18 this morning. I think everyone's found their place. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Heavenly Father, we look to you this morning and we pray that you would be our instructor. Teach us, O Father, from your word. Dispatch your Holy Spirit this morning to instruct our minds, to illuminate our hearts, to teach us these things. O Lord, with this prayer, we are acknowledging and confessing our utter need of your guiding hand, of your teaching hand, of your loving hand. So, O Father, open our hearts And open your word to meet our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we began a new study. We completed our study, at least for now, of Genesis. And we begin this new study in John's Gospel. And I know uh, a number of you have expressed a lot of excitement about studying John's Gospel. And if we were to ask a number of people what your favorite book of the Bible is, it's... uh, it's very possible that many would say the Gospel of John. And I think there's a lot of very good reasons for that. One, it is one of the four Gospels that we have. Uh, but two, there's a certain uh, accessibleness to John's Gospel, isn't there? You know, I can remember reading and studying the Bible. Well, I didn't hardly know anything about the Bible. But I could read John's Gospel and feel like I got something out of it. Uh, maybe more so than 
say, Leviticus or, uh, or Numbers or some of the vast genealogies that are in Chronicles, right? They're all equally part of God's Word. But you could read John's Gospel and you could say, you know, son, I think I'm, I think I'm getting something out of this. I think, I'm, I, think I, I think I understand what's going on. But then you go back and you study those verses again and you look at them again and you look at them again and you say to yourself, you know something, this is really deep. In fact, it's, it's simple, maybe in a deceptively simple kind of way, if that makes any sense. I don't know if that made Did that make sense, Cody? Simple, deceptively simple, maybe simple in some kind of sense. Um, that's what it'll make you do, isn't it? As you begin to study these things. But it's glorious, and it rewards. When we roll up our sleeves and we go to study this, it is, it is a glorious uh, gospel indeed, to study. Now, let me make a confession. Uh, For a number of weeks, it was my intention to look at verses 1 through 4 in the first uh, message, if you will, on the first Lord's Day, and then verses 6 through 8 on the second Lord's Day, verses 9 through 13 on the third, 14 through 18 uh, on the fourth. And I am so thankful that the Lord has steered me away from doing that. Because uh, the way John's gospel is written, and we're going to see, is that John will begin to introduce a thread, if you will, or a doctrine. And then that doctrine kind of goes off into the background, and then another doctrine. And then that doctrine will go into the background, and then there'll be another doctrine. Then all at once, you'll see the first doctrine. And it kind of reminds me, I know many of you love the beach, And once in a while when you're on the beach, if you spend enough time there, you'll look out and you'll see a school of dolphins, won't you? Has anybody ever seen dolphins at the beach? You don't see them every time, do you? But they are such a treat to see. And you look out and you'll see one up, it goes, and down. Then another one, maybe sometimes two of them at once. They're always there, but they only appear for a moment only to go back down, up, back down, up, back down. That's a lot like what John is doing here. These uh, doctrines, if you will, they're beautiful. They're glorious. They jump up. We see them for a moment. Back down they go. But they're always there underneath. And then maybe we'll see two more come up. Oh, there, look at that. There's two more. And then you read a few more sentences. Oh, there's the first one again. So all of this to say is if we would have looked at the first dolphin and we'd have spent all our time looking at the first dolphin, we're only going to find out here in a couple of chapters that dolphin appears again. And then what are we going to do if we've said everything about that dolphin at chapter 1? Well, then we're going to find ourselves repeating ourselves like I had kind of said, I think it was Wednesday or maybe last week. So how, what do we do? I, I normally wouldn't take as many verses as I've, took it, as I've taken this morning, uh, verses 1 through 18, there is a lot here. It's very densely packed. Um, it's going to be like backing a truck up and dumping it on you, which is something I have a little bit of a habit of doing. I, I try not to do that. Uh, but this morning, it's exactly what's going to happen. And I think um, this morning, I, I don't think I should apologize for that. I think Actually, that's the way it comes to us. And we might say to ourselves, you know what? Wow, this is a lot. I see some of you have notebooks. That's good. You're going to need notebooks. I hope we have thinking caps. We're going to need those. 
But here, be of good cheer. Because if we don't get every detail of all of these dolphins that are going to be jumping up out of the water at us, it's quite all right because we're going to be meeting them again and again and again and again. And I think what John wants to do, what he wants us to do, and I think what the Holy Spirit's up to here is he's just giving us a flash so that we get a little bit at a time as we go along. So verses 1 through 18 form what is often called the prologue of John's gospel. It's the introduction of John's gospel. And in verses 1 through 4, we have one of the most incredible statements concerning the deity of Christ in all of the gospel. When we go to verse 1 and we see the first three words, what immediately comes to mind? In the beginning. What do we think of when we read in the beginning? Our minds are immediately taken to Genesis 1. And this would have been true of John's Greek readers in the first century. They wouldn't have read in the beginning. They would have read anarche in the beginning. And their minds would have went back to Genesis 1, just like our minds are going back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, before anything was created. And this is something unique to the Gospel of John. John is taking us further back than the other three Gospels take us. John is taking us back into eternity before anything has been created. And there we're told, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. Now, that right there could have us scratching our heads. Okay, nothing's been created, and there is God. We got that. But there's someone with God. And then we come to the next statement, that this someone who is with God was God. Now, I don't know if you've ever, if the Lord has ever just run you over with this passage before, but he has me. Probably 20 years ago, and as I recall, it was on a Saturday because I had time just to read and reflect, and I didn't have to, you know how it is, you get your Bible out, you don't have, you don't have as much time as you wish you had, because you got to run off, you got to get off and get busy. And I know it was one of those mornings where I didn't have to run off right away, I'm thinking it was Saturday, and I read these words. And it was just like I got hit by a truck with these words. And I thought, wow, what a statement. What a statement. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What are we to make of this statement? What are we to make of this? Who is this Word? And how is it that he is with God and also is God? Now, it's all once if I might make some application this morning. I'm not going to make a lot of application this morning because really this morning my goal is just to introduce, to introduce a number of things that we might get our minds working on. But let's make some application now. You know, you're you're studying your Bible, you got your time, and on you get this knock on the door. And you go to the door, and it's representatives from the local kingdom hall. And they want a few minutes of your time because they want 
They want to find out if you're a believer or not, if you're a Christian or not. And if you tell them that you're a Christian, well, then they want to bring, they want to get out their Bibles and they want to say, well, 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 here I want to share something with you from John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. And you say, uh, what? that's not, something's not right. That's not the way, that's not the way my Bible reads. Oh, that's because your Bible's faulty on this verse. That's a common problem. And then they give you a little bit of technical language here. A little bit of technical language. They'll say this. There is no definite article in front of God. Now, if you liked English in high school as much as I did, you're thinking definite article in front of God. Uh, what, are they, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Well, the definite article is something we use all the time. You know, for example, if I would ask somebody to, if I'd ask Cody, Cody, could you go to my toolbox, the second drawer up from the bottom, uh, get me a drill from there. Cody would go to my toolbox, he would open up the drawer, and he would find in that drawer, there's probably, I don't know, three or five drills uh, in that drawer. Now, I've asked him to bring a drill, Right? That means he could choose any one he likes, the one that's on top, the one that's most convenient. It makes no difference. Any one of a number of drills. Because I have said, bring me a drill. But let's suppose me and Cody are trying to drill through some concrete. Well, then I would say, Cody, in the, in the second drawer up from the bottom, um, could, you, could you grab the hammer drill? Now, why would I say it that way? Well, because in that drawer, there is only one hammer drill. I only own one hammer drill. It is the hammer drill. So what are we doing? We do this all the time. We use this all the time. We say the, meaning that we're talking about a specific drill, right? A particular drill. The only drill. The only, in this case, hammer drill. Now, our, our friends on our porch, they say to us that there is no definite article in front of God. Therefore, we're not talking about the God. It has to be translated, a God, a God. Now, I've been saying this for years, and I'll say it again, because it's been a long time since I said it. If we taught basic Greek in our school system, they wouldn't have a case. They wouldn't even begin to have a case because we would all understand, listen, your, your translation is erroneous. It's faulty. That's just not simply how you translate this construction. Years ago, when we had Karen and Drew with us so much, when they were just toddlers, I used to ride around, and you know, when you're teaching toddlers words, you can teach them Greek words as easily as you can teach them any word. And I used to teach them from this passage. We used to go down the road, and I used to say, okay, let's say John 1. You ready? And they'd be their cute little voices. Yeah, we're ready. We're ready, Pappy. We're ready. Okay, anarche. And I'd hear them back there, their little voices, trying to say, anarche. Anarche. 
What am I saying? In the beginning. N-R-K. Hain. That is the word for was. It's a form of A-me. It's a form of to be. In the beginning was. Ha. Logos. Now the word ha is the definite article. It's kind of like the in the English language. And logos, you know logos, right? We know logos, like logos bookstore or logos Bible software, uh, or anytime we put ology at the end of something like psychology, psychology is suke and logos put together. So it's a word about the soul, if you weigh suke being inner man, soul, life, uh, logos being word, a word about the soul. So what do we have? Anarche, hain, ha, logos. In the beginning was the word. Then we have kai, an, ha, logos, and the word, hain again, was, hain, was, okay, with God, prostantheon, with God. We're all good up to this point. But then when we take a look at John in the Greek, and I brought, my, I brought my Greek New Testament with me this morning, and when you open it up to this last phrase, well, guess what? The folks from the Kingdom Hall are right. There is no definite article in front of God. We have simply the words chi, which means and, theos, you know theos. Theos is the word for God. Think of theology. Okay? So, and, no definite article. God. Then we have hain again, was. Then we have a definite article, ha, logos. Kai, theos, hain, ha, logos. And God was the word. If we wanted to make a wooden... Uh, 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 translation of that passage, word for word, it would be, and God was the Word. Now, we don't translate it in English that way because in the Greek language, halagos, and this is not so important for this morning's discussion, but halagos is in a certain case known as a nominative case, and it has the definite article in front of it, and that tells us it's the subject of this clause. And you'll recall from English way back when that in the, in the English language, we typically put the subject where in the sentence? We put it first. So when we bring this into English, we bring this in, the word was God. Now their argument is because there is no definite article in front of God, then it's not the God, but it's a God. So they translated, and the word was God. Uh, God. Now, the problem with that is, if you take that rule, if you will, and you begin to apply that rule elsewhere in the New Testament, you get some crazy stuff. In fact, even in verse 49, if you look at verse 49 of chapter 1, there Nathaniel is making a profession of, of Christ and uh, here we have the same thing going on. We have the lack of a definite article in something that he has said. He says, Rabbi, uh, the, the Greek is Rabbi, su e ha huios tu theo. He says, su basileos. Basileos is king. King. 
He says, Basileus A to Israel. Okay, you can hear Israel in that, right? To Israel, genitive clause of Israel, simply what it means, of Israel. But king, Basileus, has no definite article. So if we apply this rule that the folks on our porch are telling us to apply, then we need to translate this. We need to put in Nathaniel's mouth that he is saying that Jesus is a king of Israel. Now, does that fit the context? Not at all. Not at all. Now, I'm not taking you through all this, all this in thinking that you're going to remember all this necessarily, but by doing all of this, I want you to know to the very bottom of your heart, there is no argument there. In fact, there is a reason that John does not use the definite article. Let's suppose for a second that John did use the definite article, and we go back to, we go back to 1 1. Let's suppose John would have used the definite article there, and he would have said, he would have said this Kai ha theos, hain ha logos. That would be literally translated, and the God was the Word. We'd bring it into English and say, and the Word was the God. Now, what would that mean? Would that mean the same thing? Absolutely not. No. In fact, if it read that way, then uh, 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 Sibelius would be correct. Some of you are familiar with Sibelianism, which teaches that Jesus is the Father, confuses the person of Jesus and the Father, molds them together, that Jesus is the Father. In fact, Luther said, he said the, the absence of the article is against Sibelianism. That's what he would say. So if John would have used a definite article, then the personhood of the Word would be lost in God. It would be lost in the Father. So you might remember that detail. I'd say, well, you know, listen, the reason the definite article is, is not there is because of Sibelianism. We would, be, we would be lost. The personhood of the Word would be lost in the personhood of the Father. Well, why is God, why is God put forward in this verse like this? Why is he being put forward in this verse, forward in front of the subject like this? And it's curious that you ask. I'm glad you asked that question. Because this is something that is commonly done in the Greek language for emphasis. That's what Nathaniel's doing. Why is Nathaniel bringing Basileus, the king, out ahead of that genitive phrase of uh, our king of Israel? Why is he bringing king out to the front? Because he is emphasizing this. In fact, we should read this uh, with great emphasis. You are the king of Israel. That's how we should read this. And that's exactly what John is doing in verse 1. It's emphasis. It's a common thing that's done in the Greek language. That's why I say, if we taught basic Greek in our school systems, by the fourth or fifth grade, maybe sixth grade, most folks would know better than this. Our kids would know better than this. What is John doing? He's emphasizing. He's emphasizing God. He's saying the Word is God. The Word was God, is what he is saying. In the beginning was the Word, 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, here we go back into eternity before anything was created, and what do we discover? We discover there is God, we discover there is the Word, and we discover that the Word is with God, and we discover that the Word was God. And if we skip to verse 14, we see that the Word become flesh and dwell among us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son, There's the identity of the Word. The Word is the Son. But interestingly, here is the identity of God from the Father. Much of the time when we encounter God in the New Testament, it is a reference to the Father. It is a reference to the Father. We could say in the beginning was the Son, and the Son was with the Father. Now, what we want to be careful with in the next phrase is we don't want to say, and the Son was the Father. You see, that's what we'd be saying if we had the in front of God. Is that clear? You know, this might sound silly, but I, Tammy and I heard a preacher say just that in his sermon not very long ago. He told his congregation that Jesus is the Father. Now, I didn't bring it up in the car on the way home. Tammy did. (laughs) Uh, At first, I thought maybe it's a slip. When you're up here, you don't even have to be up here. I mean, you say some things, and you think you're saying one word, you're saying another word. We all do that in conversation all the time, don't we? I don't know we give the benefit of the doubt here. He didn't just say that, did he? And I'm not sure I heard the next couple of things that he said because I was stuck. But as he continued to talk, he did not give me any confidence that that was a slip-up. That's not a small little blooper. This is a major, major issue. If we add the in front of God, well, then he'd be correct, at least as far as this verse is concerned. The only problem is, once this verse was, was, once it was, Uh, forced to stand under the scrutiny of the teaching of the rest of the New Testament, it's going to contradict it. You see, the the Jehovah's Witnesses cannot change this doctrine simply by putting an A in front of God. I would guess, and I, I, I have a copy of the New World Translation somewhere in a box, and I would think that if we took, even if we took that translation, we could probably make... Uh, their translation of verse 1 contradict the Scriptures elsewhere because it isn't like we get this doctrine from one passage of Scripture only. This doctrine is all over the place. We're going to see this. This is a dolphin jumping up out of the, out of the water. And we're going to see that this same dolphin is going to jump up over and over and again, especially when Jesus says to his, to his opponents, before Abraham was, I am. There's that dolphin again. What a dolphin that is. See, we're going to see that over and over again as we go through this gospel. We're going to see that. It's exciting as all get out. Now, someone would say, well, he's a created, you know, he's a created being. He's a created being. Um, 
God created all things through him, but uh, he created him first, and then God created everything through him. Well, look at verse 3. All things were made through him. But look at the second part of that. Look at the second part of that. Without him was not anything made that was made. There hadn't been anything made in creation yet. And if that isn't enough, look at verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Boy, what is that, what is that all about? In him was life. We were talking about this Wednesday night, that within God, you know, God is a spirit. We would, and this is an advertisement for Wednesday nights. Uh, we're, we're basically what we're studying with the fourth question of the shorter catechism is the doctrine of God. And uh, last Wednesday, we were just looking at the fact that God is a spirit. And one of the things I was developing from that is he is a life-giving spirit. He is a life-giving spirit. He, he is the source of life. In him is life. Now, we all understand that. Our lives are derived from God. God's, God gives to us life, but our lives are derived. As Calvin said, our lives are preserved, are preserved by God. So in Him is life. Notice that this same attribute is being ascribed to the Word. There's another dolphin. That dolphin will come up again. In John 11, for example, when Jesus is talking to Lazarus' sister and he says, I am the resurrection and the what? The life. Ah, there's that dolphin again. I like this dolphin thing. Or when Jesus says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the what? The life. So in him was life and the life was the light of men. What is that all about? Well, we're being introduced to two terms, life and light. John likes these words. He uses these words often. Most of the time when we encounter life and light, we're thinking in terms of salvation, new life, being born again, uh, regeneration. Light would be the light of the gospel, the light of Christ, the light of his identity. Uh, But here, some commentaries, and I think they're right, they're pointing to the fact that this, that that the immediate context is creation here. And I think what they're, I, th- I think they're right. I, I, I have to say this would be my position on this as well, that life here is really what is meant is uh, life given uh, in a creation sense. We're to look at this uh, towards creation. Uh, in him is life. That means in him is our lives. In him is all life. And how is, how is this life the light of men? It's the light of men because we can look out at what has been made and we can see that there is a creator. Let's think back to Genesis 1, which we just read. In verse 26 and 27, what does God say? He says, let us. Notice the plurality. Let us. Who is he speaking to? Some have suggested angels. But I don't think he's speaking to angels because he says, let us 
make man in our image. We're not made in the image of angels, nor are angels involved in creating us. They're involved in ministering to us, but they're not involved in creating us. Here we're having an inter-Trinitarian discussion. Now, some people will, some, some scholars will say, no, this is just the plurality of His Majesty. That is possible. But that's not the position I take on that verse. On that verse, the position I take is what we have is an inner Trinitarian discussion. Let us make man in our image. So we are uniquely created. We are uniquely endowed with the ability to look out and see that there's a creator. In him is life. That's where we live and move and have our being, isn't it? And when we look out, we see light. General revelation, we sometimes call it. So with Psalm 19, the heavens do indeed declare the praise of God and the skies proclaim his workmanship. Or we could say with the Apostle Paul in Romans 1 that all of us know God exists because we can look out and see that God exists. And I think that this understanding lends to helping us understand verse 5. The light shines in the darkness. What is the darkness? Well, it's absence of light. That'd be one meaning. But I think more specifically, it's evil. It's evil. The darkness is evil. It's, it's man and his rebellion against the light. So the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. Or some of your translations may say comprehend it. Or some may say understood it. The same word has all that range of meaning. Now what's going on there? I think what's going on there is what the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 1. That even though we can all look out and see that God exists, we don't honor Him, we don't serve Him, but we suppress that truth and darkness. We suppress that truth and unrighteousness. And John's telling us the same thing. The light is shining in the darkness. The darkness is not overcome it. Now, there's another way we could understand this, and I think maybe we're to understand this both ways, is that the darkness is not overcome it. We might think of the darkness as trying to extinguish the light. It's trying to extinguish the light. It's trying to extinguish the light, to thwart it, to put it down. We see that going on everywhere, don't we? In case you haven't noticed it, just turn on the news. You'll see it. All of these crazy things that people are advocating today. And, you know, these things are on the drawing board to teach our children in the school systems. Light is shining, but the darkness is not able to overcome it. Listen, we can be of good cheer this morning. This verse comforts us because... Darkness can hurl everything it has at the light, but it will not overcome it. It will not overcome it. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness. There's another dolphin, witness. We'll be looking at that next week. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Verse 9, the true light, here we're back to the light again, which enlightens everyone. 
How is this light lightening everyone? The true light is the Word. How is the Word enlightening everyone? Is everyone going to be in, inwardly enlightened? We could think of it as inward. We could think of it as outward. Is it inward? I think we have to say no to that. If you've done any amount of evangelism at all, you're going to be with me saying no to that. So then, how is the light enlightening everyone? There is no neutrality. There just simply is no neutrality under this light. And what do I mean by that? You have to make a decision. You're either 100% for the light, or you're apart from the light. You're either with the light, or you're against it. Jesus says himself, he who's not for me is what? Is against me. You say, wait a second, now there's a fence, isn't there? No. Where's the fence? There is no fence. We're either for Christ. Christ is either, he's either the governing principle of our lives, our greatest treasure, our all all, or we're against him. That's what's being taught here. The quicker we tell everyone there's no fence, the better everyone's going to be, actually. Yeah. There is no fence to sit on. There is no neutrality. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Here's another dolphin. It's a rejection. We're going to see rejection. That's going to be a theme that's going to go through, threaded through. See, all these things are threaded through the fabric of this gospel. It just makes me think of them dolphins jumping up and down. It's not that they disappear or they go away. They're still there. You just can't see them. But then they come back up, and they're always part of what's going on underneath the surface. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He became flesh. He dwelt among us. He walked among us. The creator and sustainer of the universe is walking among us. And we knew him not. Verse 11 continues with that theme. He came to his own and his own people. That it would be the Jewish people, the Israels, the Israelites. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But then verses 12 and 13, we see another dolphin. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Well, what's going on there? Well, we call that regeneration. We would call that a new heart. And this theme's picked up in John 3, isn't it? Jesus teaches this theme in John 3. See, that dolphin will reappear in John chapter 3, at night when Nicodemus sneaks out to see Jesus, right? That's why if you don't get all of this, and, and if you're hearing much of this for the first time, you're not going to get all this. And you're going to be like, whoa, what was that? Don't, be, don't worry about it. Don't worry about that. Because these things are going to keep popping up. And by the time we get to the fifth and sixth chapter, you're going to say, wow, I keep seeing these things over and over again. You know, with, 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 with each time we learn a little bit more. Uh, it, it's, it's going to be glorious. It's going to be glorious. And let me add to this too. Uh, here in a few minutes when I close, and you, and you close the book, don't leave the book closed until next Sunday. 
Get back in John and immerse yourself in John's gospel all through this week, as much as you have time for. And the more that you soak in John's gospel, the more of this you're going to get. Paul, the Apostle Paul tells us that we reap what we sow, right? I can tell you right now, if you immerse, your, immerse yourself in John's gospel, immerse yourself in chapter one, go back over and study these things and you'll be amazed at how much the Holy Spirit will bring this back to you. I guarantee, I guarantee it. Uh, put the time in. Now, verse 14, we've already looked at. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us. We've seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. Verse 15, there's John bearing witness about Him. Verse 16, and from His fullness, we have received grace upon grace. A lot of ink has been spilled about grace upon grace. Um, I don't know. We're looking like our minds are getting a little tired. You want to hear a little bit about that? You want me to move on? Give me a hands up if you want to hear some more. You're done. We've got about a 50-50 bunch here, man. <laughs> Why don't we table that? Um, For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Verse 18. Now, I want to give you a peg to hang all this stuff on. Because right now we got it scattered all over the place. How do we gather all this up and put this in our minds? What? In fact, if someone were to ask you at lunchtime, what was that sermon all about? Right now you might go, dolphins. <laughs> right? I, I, it's dolphins or something. They up and down. They're in the water. Uh, I don't know, but it was. I'm just glad it's over. Uh, verse 18 helps us put this together so that we have something maybe a little bit better to say than dolphins. No one has ever seen God. That is a theme that runs through the Old Testament, isn't it? God says, no one can see me and live. And then we have various theophanies throughout the uh, Old Testament. And often when, when, when men, even holy men, such as Isaiah, encounters a theophany, that is a manifestation of God's glory, what happens to him? It literally comes apart. Now, Moses, he asks to see God's glory. God allows him just to see just the fringes of his rear quarters, if you will. No one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. Look at the second part of that. The only God who is at the Father's side. And by the way, why did I stop at verse 18? Because there's the other inclusio. You remember the word inclusio? I introduced that to you. I've mentioned it a number of times. Bookends, brackets. You, You have a footnote. Probably, many of you will. The ESV has a footnote there, after side. If you look down at the footnote, it says, in the bosom of the Father. In the bosom of the Father. I actually prefer that margin, actually. Because then it would say, no one, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the bosom of the Father. Who is at the bosom of the Father. That brings out the intimacy of this verse. You see, the Word is with God in verse 1, and the Word is with God in verse 18. And that is the inclusio. That is the brackets. These are the brackets, if you will. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is intimately with God. 
has made him know. And that's the title of this morning's message. Forty minutes later, it's not about dolphins. Christ has come to reveal himself in his triune estate as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who are in concert and bent on gathering up wretched sinners such as you and me. And the apostolic witness, the witness of John the Baptist, the witness of the Word, the witness of the grammar, the witness as we go through, the witness of angels, has seen Him. And they have seen His glory. And John is writing so that we may come to believe. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You and praise You for this glorious, glorious Word. Oh, Father, as our minds are full, there's a lot of information. Father, we're of good cheer because there is a lot of material in our hearts for You to work and to labor and to teach and to instruct. And as we go through this gospel and as we meet these themes that appear, these dolphins, if you will, as they appear to us, Lord, you will be able to then work these truths into our hearts. And Father, we, we, we look with great anticipation, Father. We are excited about this study and we, we look to you, O oh Father, uh, deepen, deepen our knowledge of you, deepen our sight of you, deepen the, uh, our grace, sharpen our eyes that we may see your glory. Oh, Father, change our lives in accordance to what we see. Oh, Father, we're very excited to continue to study this great book. And here we see, we see the deity, we see the godness of the Word, the godness of the Son. We see the godness of Christ Jesus in this passage. And through Him, we will see You, O Father. And we will see You, O Holy Spirit. And we look forward to these things. In Jesus' name, amen.